One of the things I would ask for us to ponder here this morning, if a person gets up in the morning and the first thing they do is they have an alcoholic drink, and then throughout the day they have a few more of those drinks, and then the last thing they do before they go to bed is have another drink, would you say that person's addicted? Would you say they're an addict, right? Well, I've come to the conclusion I'm addicted to my cell phone because that's exactly how I behave when it comes to my cell phone. The first thing I do when I get up in the morning is look at my cell phone and I look at it multiple times throughout the day. And then at night, the last thing I do sometimes before going to bed is check my cell phone to check if there's any last minute things that I need to pay attention to. We actually have seen since 2015 to 2020, the rate of people checking their smartphones has increased, almost doubled again and again and again each year until 2020. The average person, I, someone texted me this morning, the average person checks their cell phone 160 times a day in 2020 this past year. So that tells us that maybe we're all addicted to our cell phones, to our technology uh, I also did a little bit digger deeping and in an attitude of confession and authenticity. I thought I'd share a couple things about my cell phone habits. One, I checked my screen time. My average screen time, which you can check on your cell phone, is two hours and 46 minutes. And I thought, wow, what am I doing? How, how's that happening? I don't feel like I'm ever on my phone that long when I am checking it. So I went and I looked, and you can actually look at the breakdown of the different apps you're using and how long you're using them. And I'm probably accessing multiple apps on my phone so I said, well, how many apps do I have on my phone? So I counted them all up. I have 148 apps on my cell phone. That seems like a lot. And I started to have this thought, like, what would it, what would it be like if I took with me everywhere I went 148 people? Like, if 148 people just followed me around, and at any given moment of the day, they could try to get my attention. I, could you imagine what life would be like if we had 148 people walking around with us silently, but every once in a while wanting our attention, giving us a little notification, right, that they need our attention? Think about that. That would, that would drive us all insane, we would say. We'd say that's unrealistic, right? And yet that's, that's similar to what our cell phones are doing, right? Our cell phones are actually designed like uh, slot machines in Vegas to get our attention, I love the way that writer Robinson Meyer put it in 2017. He says, if you go grow dependent on your smartphone, it becomes a magical device that silently shouts your name at your brain at all times. <laughs> silently shouts your name at your brain at all times. And that's exactly what our smartphones are designed to do, to shout at our brain, to get our brain's attention. And they've actually designed them like slot machines in Vegas. So some of the things, you know, if you look at a slot machine, it's got lots of colors and things and bells and whistles and makes sounds also gives, gives light, right? Uses the color and light. Same thing on our cell phones. Notice that our, all our notifications come in the same color, the color red. A little red bubble pops up to get our attention because our eyes are wired, our brains are wired to, to pay attention to whatever looks red, that red color. And that's part of the design of notifications to get our attention. You also notice that some of our apps, that one of the things you can do is like scroll down to refresh, and then you get more stuff pop up, right? You can do that with your email. You can do that with social media, right? Notice that that's similar to what's on a slot, a, a, a slot machine. You pull a lever, and every time you pull a lever, you get more interaction. You get more engagement, right? You get more stuff popping up on 
on the, uh, the screen there for your, if you've done that, right? Same thing with the cell phone. It's been designed and created in a way to get our attention and keep our attention as long as possible. And so we don't even know sometimes that our brain works that way and that our brain is processing that. And so one of the things we have to ask ourselves is, well, if this is the case, what could I do to kind of put some boundaries or put some structure around my cell phone use? And so here are a few things that we could do to kind of help minimize that. Um, And one of the questions I think we should ask ourselves as we think about this is, what is worthy of my attention? That's a great question. What is worthy of my attention, especially when it comes to use of cell phone? So if you think about that question, then here's uh, first thing we can do. One, turn off all notifications. You can just turn off all your notifications on your phone so that you don't get those little red uh, bubbles anymore. Uh, or you could say, what is worthy of my attention? And only turn on those apps that are worthy of our attention and just turn those on or keep those on on our phones. That way we're not carrying around 148 potential uh, interruptions. We're actually maybe carrying around maybe 10 uh, so, so for, uh, to ask for our attention. The other thing we could do, I learned, is you could grayscale your screen because our brains are so wired to see color and to see that red dot. You can actually go into your uh, settings and grayscale your screen so that you see not color. You don't see color anymore. And all the, many of the app icons and many of the are designed in colors to get our attention and to draw us to them right, based on brain, uh, the science of the brain. And so keep that in mind. So if you grayscale, you eliminate color and you begin not to pay as much attention. Now, I tried this. It didn't work for me, so I want to throw this out there because I found my eyes straining. And as I age, my eyes need a little bit more help. And so with the grayscale, I found myself straining a little bit more to see things. So that didn't work for me, but I think for younger folks, that would be a great idea to, or if you just want to have a day or a couple days a week where you grayscale your phone or turn off or do not disturb settings and schedule that, those are ways to minimize some of that interruption. And then the other thing is organize your home screen. Again, ask the question, what is worthy of my attention? And whatever's worth your attention, put on your home screen. And when you start to make that determination, elimination, uh, if you look at my home screen, my home screen is only half full. Uh, it doesn't have a full screen of apps. All the other apps are on other screens, but my home screen has a very limited number of apps like my calendar, uh, the weather, uh, my, my Google Maps uh, if I have to go anywhere, also my devotionals, my, my devo- online devotionals, as well as my first free Methodist app, uh, which I keep there on my homepage as well. So those are things that are important. Those are things I, I'm saying, these are worthy of my attention, and so I keep on my home screen, and so I'm less likely to pay attention to those apps that are buried further down on my phone. So those are just some things to think about, because last week we, I raised, we raised the question is, you know, are we more obedient and responsive to our cell phones rather than the voice of God in our lives? Are we becoming, because we've become more responsive to what the cell phone is saying to us, rather than really listening to what God's voice is saying to us and being responsive to God's voice, which is part of that obedience? One of the questions that Joan Chittister raises for us uh, in her book, uh, Wisdom Distilled for the Daily, is she makes this connection between authority and obedience. And really, the connection is to what we've given authority in our lives over to, right? And a lot of times, that's what addictions are. But here's what uh, Joan Chittister said. She says, The only question is to what authority have I surrendered 
And how do I myself use authority when I have it? Authority and self-determination are two of the major problems of the spiritual life. And so what she raises is that there's this, this struggle within us between being a self-determinate human being, which is very much the, the way our culture is to be self-reliant and self-determined, versus really submitting to or surrendering to any authority in our lives, which can also be a little scary for us, right? And our self-determination keeps getting in the way of that. And yet, if you think about a lot of our addictions, what addiction is, part of addiction is we've surrendered control and authority to something else in our lives that's not from God, that's not the voice of God or to what God has called us to do or God's uh, teaching in the Bible. And we've surrendered our authority and control of our lives to something else, which is part of addiction. Now, surrendering ourselves to God's authority actually could be very good for us and very healthy for us. I want to, if you look at... um, the scripture, we heard Camille read the scripture for us today about this story of Jjesus coming out. Uh, the disciples are in a boat and they're, they're being attacked by wind and waves and they're struggling against to get the boat across the lake in this wind, uh, stormy environment and the waves are battering against the boat. And so Jesus in, in the evening and the night comes walking to them on the water and they think Jesus is a ghost, right? They think it's an apparition. And they're in the boat, they're scared, they're afraid, and anytime fear seizes us, you know, we freeze up, we don't know what to do, and, we, and they see Jesus. But I want you to take a look. Let's take a look what, what happens with Peter. So Peter is the one disciple who wants to walk on water. Did you know, you know that's what we heard in the story, that G- Peter wants to walk on water. He wants to go out and connect with Jesus, right? He wants to follow Jesus and walking on water. Notice, though, that how Peter approaches Jesus in this moment. Notice how he wrote. Let's like take a look at verse 28. So verse 28, it says, Now, Lord, if it's you, order me to come to you on the water. Notice how Peter phrases that. Order me to come to you on the water. So what Peter is seeing, notice that Peter sees himself as under the authority of Jesus. And what he's saying is, Jesus, I can't walk on water unless you order me to do it. Unless you command me to do it, I, this isn't going to be possible, right? And so, but Jesus, if you ask me to do it, I know that I could do this, right? I could come to you on the water. And uh, notice, though, that he sees himself under authority. He surrendered to the authority of Jesus, and so he actually asked Jesus to command him. He's waiting for the call. He's waiting for the command. He's waiting for the order from Jesus just like a soldier would wait for a, a order from their superior officer, right? So that's, what, that's the relationship between Peter and Jesus. Notice also that Peter is the first one to want to jump out of the boat because the other disciples probably, you know, were seized with fear. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to make of the situation. Notice, though, that how readily Peter is to obey Jesus, to put obedience into practice, and how ready he is to be obedient to what Jesus is commanding him, ordering him to do. St. Benedict said this about obedience in his teaching on humility. We talked about humility last week and St. Benedict's 12-step program for our pride and overcoming pride through the use of, through the practice of humility. And now we're looking at obedience. Here's what St. Benedict had to say about obedience. He said, the first degree of humility is obedience without delay. Obedience without delay. So we find Peter ready to jump out of the boat. He's, he's willing to be obedient without delay. 
If you look at the, the gospel lessons, every time Jesus goes and calls disciples and invites them to follow him, notice that one of the response, often the response is they drop everything and they immediately follow him. They don't hesitate, right? There's no delay in their response. There's no delay in their obedience. Uh, Abraham, in the Old Testament, he, God called him to go to another land and move his family there. He gets up the very next morning, packs everything up, and they start the journey to the, prom- to the promised land. He's, what is that? That's obedience without delay. That is what the obedience, the biblical witness of obedience looks like. And so this idea that we will respond. I would imagine, and it's not in the Gospels, it's not in the Bible, I wonder though, I imagine and wonder sometimes if Jesus called other disciples and other people to follow, but they didn't respond immediately, right? That they kind of said, well, let me think about it, or let me go check with some, on some things and get back to you. That, and those were the ones that didn't end up being disciples, right? The ones that ended up being Jesus' disciples were the ones who were ready to follow immediately, to respond in, a, in an immediate way. And it's interesting too that in the passage today, with Peter, that as soon as Peter starts to get fearful again and look at the wind and the waves, it says that as he began to sink, what did Jesus, how did Jesus respond to Peter? He immediately rescues him, it says in the text. There's also an immediate response from Jesus in this uh, story, right? So Peter has an immediate response, and in like kind, Jesus is responding immediately to Peter as well. And so there's something about this obedience without delay that is a part of obedience. Now, I don't know how your obedience works. I know how my obedience works. And I imagine that we all have a, maybe because of our self-determination, we're not always willing to be obedient to God and to surrender to God's authority in our life. That's a hard thing to do. It's a risky thing to do. I find that oftentimes my obedience, obedience is what, I, what we would call reluctant obedience. You know, sometimes we're just reluctantly obedient. We'll, we'll obey, but we're hesitant. We're not really sure. We're not fully surrendered to the idea, right? Uh, imagine when, you know, I remember when I was a kid and you were a kid. Do you ever remember like you're doing something your parents didn't want you to do and you're wandering off or you're not listening and you're not r- responding to them and you're not obeying your parents? And it's usually... My mom would get to the point where she got, would get frustrated that I wasn't listening to her. And so then the voice, the, the mom voice would come out, and this is what it would sound like. Donald Matthew Poole, you get over here right now. Was your, you ever heard that before? You ever heard that kind of command, right, from a parent who says, get here and use that full name. Get over here now. Now, how did I respond in the moment? Here, I'm not going to tell you how I respond. I'm going to show you how I responded just with body language. All right, you ready? (sighs) That's reluctant obedience, right? I was obeying my mom's command, but notice that I didn't want to obey. I was reluctant to obey. And my whole body language was like not wanting to, and it was reluctant and resistant to obeying, even though I was still obeying, right? but I was going to do it as slow as I could. You know, I was going to obey on my timeline, right? I was going to obey God in the way I wanted to obey, right? Or my mom, and you know, my mom is not God. Let's get that clear. But you get the idea, right? That this idea that we oftentimes are reluctantly obedient to God. Uh, that was true for us even when uh, we came to Seattle several years ago. You know, God was, we were clear that, 
pretty clear early on that God was calling us here, but we kept saying, well, God, God, did you really say that? Did you really mean that? Could you give us another confirmation, a little sign, a little nudge here, another? And we kept asking for that, even though it was clear that God was asking us to come. And so that was reluctant obedience. I, I practice a lot of reluctant obedience uh, in my life when it comes to my relationship with God. And yet what the scripture is teaching us and what uh, St. Benedict is actually the monastic uh, community is teaching us is obedience without delay, not reluctantly, right? And I think that's also biblical. The other thing I think we do in our obedience is something we w- I would call negotiated, we would call negotiated obedience, that there are times we negotiate our obedience with God. And really this isn't obedience at all, is it? If we're negotiating with God about how we're going to be obedient, we're really still in the driver's seat, so to speak. We're still using our own self-determination to basically negotiate with God what God's teaching is, what God is asking us to do, or what the obedience looks like. And so we're negotiating with God and saying, God, well, could we shift this or change that? Or could we do this? Can we compromise on this, God? Right? And so those are the kind of conversations negotiated obedience has. And really what it is is self-determination masquerading as obedience, right? But it's really just us telling God what we want to do. So it's interesting because Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, he laid out the kingdom ethic. He laid out these ethical practices in the kingdom uh, message on the Sermon on the Mount. And there, there are some tough teachings, tough ethical teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, like love your enemies, uh, reconcile with a person before going to the altar and worship, uh, you know, be, practice fidelity uh, in, in your relationships and your marriage, especially your marriage relationship. And, uh, and keep that marriage intact, right? So these are these teachings that sometimes look hard to the rest of the world. Look like walking on water sometimes. And Jesus says, gives us these kingdom ethics, and he's in the, in the, towards the end of his sermon, he says this. He says that, gives us this illustration in chapter 7, 13 and 14, verses 13 and 14. He says, Go in through the narrow gate. The gate that leads to destruction is broad and the road wide, so many people enter through it. But the gate that leads to life is narrow and the road difficult, so people, so few people find it. Few people find it. Few people find it because if you're ever looking for an entrance, right, to a narrow, it's harder to see. It's real easy to see the big, wide, open highway road, right? Uh, that's always easy to see. But we, few of us find it because it's, it's harder, you know, it's more difficult. And we look at that path and we go, I, I don't think, I'm not sure I want to do it. So who's determining what path we choose. I, it's our self-determination, and we negotiate the path, right, with God. God may be asking us to walk in a way, in a teaching, in a, in a way that looks very narrow to us, and we even can, might get accused of being narrow-minded, right? But there is that path that God calls us to that's not going to look convenient or comfortable. And that's the thing about the wide path, right? It's comfortable. It's convenient. There's room to move around. If I want to walk on this side of the path, I can walk over here for a little while, and then I can move over here and walk on this side of the path for a little while. I can go back and forth a little bit more. I've got more room to, to do what I want to do for my self-determination to determine what part of the path I'm on and how fast I go. And all these things kick in when we're on that wide, comfortable path. And that's human nature, to negotiate the path, right? We want to negotiate it. We don't want it to be this narrow path. We want to make it a wide path to make it more comfortable to obey God, to make it easier to obey God, right? That's what we're always trying to do as our human, as human beings, and that's negotiated obedience. 
we go back to the monastic orders, they take a very narrow path, right? If you think about their vow of celibacy, both nuns and monks, when they enter a, a community, a monastic community, what they do is they take a very narrow path called celibacy. They say, we're not going to marry, we're not going to have sexual relations with, with anyone else in our lives, and we're going to stay celibate, single for our entire lives, and give our lives to God, and make God, our relationship to God the primary relationship, which to us seems very foreign, right? seems like a very narrow and difficult road to walk, and yet that's what that vow is doing. It's calling them to, they've, they've, they've listened to the call of God in their lives to take this path of celibacy. And many people, I think we as the church need to honor people who have chosen and felt called to the path of celibacy and singleness and, and fidelity to God. It's important for us to honor them and to celebrate them. There's also, I think, even a path that still seems narrow because what's happened over the past uh, several decades is we've encountered what's called the, the sexual revolution, right? And that path is very wide, right? It basically says whatever feels good to you, whatever fulfills you in this arena of your life, just walk that path. And so we've widened the path uh, to make it easy and comfortable for anybody to walk down. And so that's the difference, right? You, could, you can see the difference between celibacy and the sexual revolution as a wide and narrow path uh, in comparison. I think even to this idea today of being celibate until monogamous marriage and fidelity in marriage is even a narrow path today for people, right? You know, that's a hard path for people to walk. And they look at it and they go, that's weird or that's foreign. Especially if you're caught up in the sexual revolution, you're looking at this other, these other practices and you're going, that's just weird or peculiar or strange, right? That, that, that looks like walking on water, doesn't it? Looks hard, looks difficult. That's what Jesus said. The narrow path is going to be difficult, and people are not going to understand it. In fact, they're not even going to be able to see that that's a valid path for them in their lives. They won't find it, Jesus says. And so that's just one example of that. And so one of the things we have to wrestle with is who's in the driver's seat? Whose authority have I submitted myself to? My own authority and what I'm determining is the path? Or am I submitted and surrendered to God's authority and God's definition of what the path is before me. It's a, it's a nuance, isn't it? It's a negotiation oftentimes of negotiating the wideness of the path. Now, there's one other type of obedience that actually John Ortberg shares with us. John Ortberg wrote a book called If You Want to Walk on Water, You Got to Get Out of the Boat. And there's a well-known quote that he uses in his book. It says this. He says, this is the fundamental truth. If you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. If you want to experience the power of God in your life, you've got to take a step of faith. It involves risky obedience. Risky obedience. That's what Peter was doing, right? When Peter steps out of the boat, he's taking a big risk. And part of that risk is surrendering to the authority of Jesus, not just walking on water, but trusting Jesus' authority in his walking on the water. The, the very difficult path of walking on water, right? That's a difficult thing to do. I haven't been able to do it. Have you been able to do it? I don't know. But it's risky, right? And today, our self-determination looks around us and we go, I'm not going to take the risk. I'm not going to risk obedience to God because we've seen abuses of authority. We've seen unhealthy uses of, of authority, and we think, that's not going to be me. So we just stay in our own self-determination. 
And yet sometimes surrendering to someone else's authority in our lives, surrendering to God's authority is actually one of the healthiest things that will make us whole in our lives. And it's because we have to trust that God loves us and has our best interest at heart, right? That's really what our surrendering to God's authority is saying. It's faith. It's trust. It's taking a step of faith and saying, God, I'm going to trust you on this narrow path rather than taking the wide path that the world has for me. I'm going to trust you as difficult as it may be going on this path, but I'm going to risk that and just trust that you've got a plan here and that trusting you is the better way to go here for my own well-being. And that's hard because we live in a culture that's basically telling us resist, reject authority, right? Because we've had human, and that's because we've placed our trust in human authorities that have failed us and let us down. And so that's the difference, right? We're talking about God's authority and God's divinity in Jesus Christ and surrendering to what God is doing in our lives to bring us wholeness and health. That's the point of maturity here in faith. So this is going to look strange and peculiar to other people, isn't it? And, it, and it's going to catch people off guard. It's going to, people are going to look at us and when we're on this narrow road and going to call us narrow-minded even, they're going to call us strange strangers in a strange land, which is what the Bible calls us as well. You know, I was thinking about my reluctant obedience, and actually I, I continue to practice it, if I'm honest with you. Just recently, I, as many of you know, I'm out in Discovery Park, and I'm out jogging, and as I'm out jogging, I see people, and all through quarantine and this past year, I've been out jogging in the park, and I, I've seen a particular person this gentleman, I've seen him time and time again out there in the park. And every time I would see him, he always was hunched over. He kept his head down, never looked up, never made eye contact with anybody or me when I went by. He always wore his hood on, his mask on. He was, he was like, court, you know, you could just see from his body language appeared to me as though he was withdrawing from the world around him, from the people around him. And that may be part of the way he's living life, always alone. Um, and I didn't know, you know, how he was doing. And so as I saw this, and I would see him every week, the same person every week, and because he wore the same jacket and stood out to me every time. And, and then one, you know, after I saw him, I thought, I, I wonder if he's doing, you know, there's this kind of thought in me that says, I hope, I hope he's okay, you know. I wonder if he's alone. I wonder if anybody ever checks on him or cares for him. You know, that was just a thought that I had. And then I had this other thought that I sensed was the Holy Spirit prompting me, saying, hey, Matt, why don't you reach out to him? Why don't you have a conversation with him? And so, so, you know, as I first heard that, you know, the first time I heard this little prompting from the Holy Spirit, you know, my first response was, ah, that, 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 that's, that's weird. You know, I'm not going to just walk up to a total stranger and say, hey, how you doing? You doing okay? Like, you know, like that would be weird, right? That would be peculiar. That would be strange. So I kept running, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, you know, I'm on my, I'm, I got my 20-minute mile time to hang on to. I don't want to mess up my time, and I don't want to stay on task, you know, and all that. So I ignored that little prompting. And then Next time I saw him, next week I saw the same thing, ran on by, felt that little nudge, no, nope, no, nope, not gonna, just gonna ignore it, right? Reluctant obedience kept kicking in for, I would say, three or four times. Then finally, I was headed out the door one day, and, and I had seen this gentleman every week, right? And uh, so I head out the door that day, and I said, uh, God, if, if I see him today, I'm gonna stop and talk to him. And sure enough, he was, it was a sun, beautiful sunny day, and uh, he was sitting there on a bench, and I just stopped, and I just said, hey, you, how are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm good, and, you know, and we started, I started a conversation with him and just said, hey, you know, I've seen you out here a few times, and just wonder how you were doing. Just wanted to check on you, make sure you were doing okay. I was, I was you know, just wanted to know 
uh, how you were doing. And he told me he was doing okay, and we, I introduced myself, he introduced himself. We talked about where we grew up, got a little background story. And so since then, I've seen him a couple more times and said hello and said, how you doing? And, and I don't know the reason for that, right? I don't, I don't know what God's going to do with that. Uh, I don't know what God's doing in, in his life and what God wants to do in his life. I just knew that God wanted me to stop and check on him, right? That's all I needed to do. It's my job to be obedient, not reluctantly obedient, but just to listen to the voice of God and say, all right, I'm going to do this. I don't know what God's going to do with that relationship. I don't know where that relationship is going to go or if I'll ever see him again. But in that moment, I listen to God. And in that moment, I'm hopeful that he knows that someone else cares for him, particularly that God cares for him. Now, there's one thing that I do not do when I'm out on a run, and, and it's easy for me as a, as a man running alone in the park to do this, but I don't take my cell phone. I never take my cell phone when I go to the park. And you know, it's interesting that when I don't have my cell phone with me, those are the times I can hear the voice of God because I'm not distracted. I'm not pulled away. I'm not uh, addicted to 148 apps on my phone but I'm able to be in the moment and I'm able to be available to what God is asking me to do. And I think that's what it means sometimes also to walk that narrow road. Let's pray together.